open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This second chapter of Acts is one of the high points of New Testament revelation. I would put it right up there with Romans 8 or Revelation 21, as far as its foundational character, its glorious summary of the truths that we hold most dear and practice, observe, most often in our Christian lives. So, Acts chapter 2. We'll spend roughly eight weeks looking at this text together. Starting right now. Not starting right now. We'll spend a half hour each Sunday for the next eight weeks looking at this text. Now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all those who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear, each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites... Dwellers in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, They're full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And so on. Let's pray. Father, your son promised the Spirit and he kept that promise. We today are the beneficiaries of that promise. We have the Spirit. Lord, help us to walk by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit. Help us to understand the manner of His pouring out, to see the fulfillment of the Feast of First Fruits, to understand what the Spirit has to teach us about your son. Thank you that he testifies to Jesus from whom he came. Thank you that he is your spirit, Father, that you breathe him forth and that he has come to us and remains with us to show us the way back to you which lies through your son and only through your son. Help us then. Pour your spirit on us now that we might hear and heed your word To us. Give me the spirit of grace and proclamation that I might speak boldly those things that I ought to speak to your people here today. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.
Well, this chapter is fundamental for establishing not only the certainty of what we've been taught, but also the identity of the kingdom, and specifically that expression in the kingdom, which is the church, the citizens' assembly of the kingdom, the population of the kingdom. That's the church, and Acts 2 tells us how the church began in its current form. Obviously, later on, Acts 7, Stephen will refer to the church in the wilderness under Moses. But the church, as it is today in this New Testament era, certainly traces its origin to this day of Pentecost. Luke teaches us about the foundation, the progress, and the activities of the church here in Acts 2. So We're going to look this morning at the Spirit coming, the event itself, which actually takes up Very little space, only four verses. The bulk of the chapter is devoted to Peter's explanation of what happened when the Spirit came, and then to Luke's summary of the outcome, what the church began to do once the Spirit was there. So we'll look at that in a number of sermons. As I said, today we'll talk about the Spirit coming and the world Jewry taking note of that. And then we'll look into uh, next Sunday at the first part of Peter's sermon, Sunday after that at the second part of Peter's sermon, and so on, getting our minds around the truths in this chapter. What we'll see today is that Jesus kept his promise. He poured out his spirit on the whole church that attracted the attention of the original target audience, which is the Jewish people as Luke goes out of his way consistently to emphasize throughout this chapter. Jesus kept his promise. He poured out the Spirit. World Jewry took notice. And it provoked a divided reaction, which is exactly what will happen with the preaching of the Gospel throughout the rest of the book and really throughout the rest of the history of the church. So what happens? Well, now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, New King James says, like the King James, probably the best current English translation out there, still not very good. The word is not fully come, the word is fulfilled, as in what happens when a prophecy comes true, when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. I don't know why translators are allergic to that word, because that's what Luke said. He's not saying they waited the ten days and Pentecost finally got there, he's saying The original feast that God gave to Israel was fulfilled on this day. The thing that that feast was pointing towards happened. Well, what is Pentecost? We generally know it as Pentecost. That's the name, of course, that it takes in the text here. That's the name that it takes in the church calendar and churches that celebrate this day. But that name doesn't give us much information. It's just the Greek word 50th. Luke says... Now when the 50th had come, we would say, of course, similar things, talking about the holidays. When the 4th comes, the 4th of July, you know, our Independence Day, that we refer to more often as the 4th than as Independence Day, even though only the latter name actually contains the description of what the holiday is about. Well, so it is with this. They just called it in Greek, 50th. But in Hebrew, its name was the Feast of First Fruits, or 
Feast of Weeks. Now, Feast of Weeks is just like 50th. It just describes when it is. It's 49 days or 50 days, depending on how you count, after the last day of Passover. So it's a week of weeks, seven weeks after the conclusion of Passover. If you're Hebrew, you call that 49. If you're Greek, you call that 50. Depends on whether you count the last day of Passover as the first day of your counting or as zero day, and then the day after the last day is the first day. Anyway, 49 days, Feast of Weeks, happened seven weeks after Passover. But its name, Feast of First Fruits, is far more informative. The Feast of First Fruits is the day on which Israel began to harvest wheat. So, they were not gluten-free in that era. They celebrated the wheat harvest. This is our first major harvest festival. Several weeks later, they had another feast, the Feast of Ingathering. That celebrated the beginning of the grape harvest. Here, the Feast of Weeks, Feast of First Fruits, is about Jesus, or about Israel starting to reap their fields, cut down the grain, and take it into the barn. So that, of course, is the exact imagery that John uses in Luke chapter 3 to describe the coming of the Spirit. Winnowing fan is in his hand. He will be threshing grain because that's what you do at the Feast of first fruits. You go out, you cut it down, and you separate the kernels of wheat off the stalks and get ready to store them for the winter. So what does Luke mean by saying that the feast of first fruits was fulfilled? Well, the answer is simple that the spirit coming, of course, was the beginning of the harvest not of wheat, but of people. That's the fulfillment of first fruits. Israel celebrated this agricultural festival all those centuries. That was great, that was cool. But what's better than wheat harvest is the beginning of the Christian harvest. But in another sense, the fulfillment is even greater than that. We've had, well, two pretty notable deaths at Roadway this last month. The wife of the associate pastor died and the father of the senior pastor died. And I've been thinking about this then in terms of first fruits and the birth of our own daughter, who's just a week or two old at the first funeral. Is the birth of a new human being an answer to the problem of death? Right? Can we say, well, Kathy Harper is dead, but that's okay because Lucia is now born. And the answer is no. The cycle of birth and death will continue on indefinitely. Every harvest is the end of the line for all those wheat plants. Every funeral is the end of the line for a human being. And no matter how many new human beings you make, the old ones are still going to die, and so are, eventually, the new ones. We are not stopping death by having children.
we are, in a sense, only creating more lives for death to cut down. The Feast of First Fruits recognized that reality. Yay, more wheat. We will eat this. And we will stave off death for another day. But death will still come as it came for the wheat that we just cut down. But when the feast of first fruits was fulfilled, something new broke into history. And that was the power of the resurrection life of the Son of God. The feast of first fruits is fulfilled in the sense that resurrection life is now on the scene and no longer will the cycle of birth and death continue. Instead, there is only birth followed by unending life. That's the fulfillment of the Feast of First Fruits. We don't have to plant a new crop of wheat every year anymore. Because we've grown one and it lasts forever. Now that's in principle. Obviously, the fulfillment is not consummated. But when it is, the cycle of birth and death completely come to an end. To be replaced by the life of the age to come, which is only life and never death. Luke is telling us all of this by saying... Day of Pentecost, the feast of first fruits is fulfilled. In the resurrection of Christ, in the ascension of Christ, he pours out the spirit of life on his people such that the annual festival goes away and instead is replaced by this ongoing process of new people coming and gaining eternal life. The harvest is no longer about killing wheat. It's about making human beings alive in such a way that they will never die. That's what's going on. That's what weeks was about, what first fruits was about. And it's fulfilled here in this moment as they're all together in one place. The presence of the spirit of life brings the life of the age to come, which is a life without death. That is the fulfillment of first fruits. So they're gathered in one place, and suddenly they hear a sound of a rushing mighty wind. Now the spirit did not come as a wind, We've all had the privilege of seeing the 18-wheelers in the gutter with all 18 wheels up in the air. And it seems like they close the roads to light, high-profile vehicles about every other day around here. But the Spirit did not come as a wind to knock Jerusalem down. He came only with the sound of wind. He's not a force of chaos who comes in and destroys things and flips semis over. He is the spirit of the word. The rational ordering principle of everything. That's what Jesus is as the Logos principle. 
and the Spirit is His Spirit. So He sounds like wind, because, of course, Spirit in Greek and Hebrew means the same thing as wind or breath. The same word is used for Spirit and breath and wind in those languages. The Spirit comes with this sound. He's like the wind in freedom and power and speed and mighty rushing energy. We've talked about God as pure act. The Spirit is like that in His energy. He has the divine potency symbolized in the sound of a mighty rushing wind. But He's not coming to knock Jerusalem down. He's coming to bring Jerusalem to Jesus. He comes with this sound indicating His power. He comes with a visual appearance as well. Tongues dividing to each one of them. Spirit is not just for the leaders, not just for the apostles, not just for the men, but He's for every last person who was there. 120 some perhaps, if it's like in the previous chapter. But clearly, the visual says it's for everyone. And of course Luke says, in so many words, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So both the sight, the picture that they saw, and then the words of the text tell us the Spirit came for all of them. Again, God appears as fire, just as He did to Moses at the burning bush, as we've been talking about in evening worship. God is a consuming fire. So the Spirit comes with this noise of wind indicating His power and the appearance of fire indicating His self-sustaining aseity. He exists of Himself. He has the power, the heat, the potency of fire. Rather than remaining in one, as the burning bush did, this fire was divided to them all. It can be infinitely multiplied. The Spirit can be infinitely distributed without losing a particle of who He is. That's what infinitude means. That an unlimited amount of the Spirit can be given to every Christian. There's always more where that came from. That's what it means to serve a divine God, right? Scarcity is the law here on earth, not the law in heaven. So the Spirit comes to every Christian. What does that mean? The wind and the fire are yours. If you have the Spirit, you will, number one, love the Word of God. The Spirit of God wrote the Word of God. If you know authors, you know that they tend to be a little bit fussy about, would you like to read what I wrote? Would you like to hear this? Well, the Spirit wrote the Word, and if you have the Spirit, you will love the Word. If you have the Spirit, you will love to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's how the Spirit dwells in you richly, by you expressing your love for Him in song. And then finally, if you have the Spirit, you will be full of love, joy, and peace. If you say to yourself, man, I am so riddled with anxiety. I can't remember the last time I sang. The Word of God is only slightly more boring to me than Danielle Steele. 
then it doesn't fit. But if you say, yes, I love the Word of God. I love to sing about God. I do have love, joy, and peace in my heart. Then those are the marks of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit, the signs of the presence of the Spirit. He is for every Christian. And these gifts then don't come from trying harder. They come from the Spirit's work. And what did He come for? Specifically at this time, He came, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. He came to empower preaching in many languages. And it was, in fact, preaching. Sharing the mighty works of God, which is what Verse 11 says, that's what they heard. They, they weren't given the power of tongues so they could discuss cricket scores in Sanskrit or talk Roman politics in Chinese. That was not why they had other tongues. They had other tongues for the purpose of describing the mighty works of God in a known language to people who knew that language. So again, if that's not what your practice of tongues is, then your practice of tongues is not the Acts 2 practice of tongues. We're not going to get into that question further. There's, of course, a lot of tongue speakers in the church today. There's quite a few people who say it should never be done as well. What's clear from this text is that if you're not talking about the mighty works of God in a known language to people who know that language you're not exercising the Acts 2 gift of tongues. That is open and shut, simple. So, the Spirit comes to fulfill the Feast of Firstfruits, to bring the resurrection life of the Son of God from heaven to earth, to put an end to the cycle of death and rebirth, the cycle of seed time and harvest, to fulfill that feast of first fruits by bringing a harvest of souls for Jesus. And how does he do it? Through the preaching of the Word of God. To empower the speaking of the mighty works of God in a language people know to those people. The point is not the tongues. The point is the content of the tongues. So again, whether you have the gift of tongues or not, what you should be most interested in is the content. As we talked about two weeks ago with witnessing, that means having first-hand knowledge. You should work on gaining first-hand knowledge of Jesus so that if called upon to testify, you can do so. And that includes in any language that the Lord happens to impart to you. The purpose of language is to testify to the mighty works of God as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what happens? What's the reaction? Well, somehow they go from where they are to some kind of open place. Maybe they were in the temple already where a lot of people could come. But the city hears and rushes together. Luke puts on his Captain Obvious hat here in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem 
Jews. Hopefully that sentence caught all of you as you heard it. Yeah, Luke, uh, Captain Obvious, right? superheroes in New York, they, they belong there. We're going to see Jews when we go to Jerusalem. That's the city of the Jewish people. So why does Luke point this out? It's like saying, I went to Mecca and saw a bunch of Arabs. I went to Delhi and saw a bunch of Indians. I went to New York and saw a bunch of Americans. Why is Luke saying this? Well, he's going out of his way to emphasize that the target audience is the Jewish people. He already did that in chapter 1. He planted the seed. Jesus saying, stay in Jerusalem till the promise of my Father comes. Why did Jesus say that? Is it because he can't give the Spirit anywhere else? The Spirit is limited in his geographical range? No. It's because he wants to reach Jerusalem and therefore he pours out the Spirit in Jerusalem. It's the city of the great king. Kings don't lightly give up their capital city. They might make a strategic retreat for a time. And the book of Acts talks about that. But they don't just walk away and abandon it to the flames unless they, you know, have to. Christ's target audience is the Jews. And that's why Luke mentions it in verse 5. And then Peter mentions it again in verse 14. Men of Judea. And who is he talking to? Well, boy, I wonder, right? There are so many commentators out there who spend a long time giving us the purported audience of New Testament books. Who is this book for? Well, I'm trying to guess based on three or four little things that the author says here and there. Well, Peter tells us, Luke tells us who the audience for this was. This was a sign for the Jewish people living in Jerusalem. Not just locals either, but Jews from all over the world. They are going to be the first fruits. They are the fulfillment of first fruits. The very first ones that are harvested to join the people of God. To get out of the cycle of seed time and harvest, death and rebirth, and come into the eternal life of the Son of God. Jesus' target audience. So Luke lists, well, first Luke mentions the public attention. When this sound occurred, the multitude came together. And this is a multitude with many devout Jewish people in it. Men from all over the world who are already followers of God, fearers of God. This is the target audience, right? You don't try to sell beard trimmers to old women. You don't try to sell snow shovels to Floridians. You don't try to present a Messiah, a long-awaited Messiah, to people who have never wanted a Messiah. Bring the Messiah to those with a messianic expectation. And that is what Peter does. That's what the apostles do. That's what Jesus does. Multitude comes together, multitude of devout, Jews hearing their own language spoken. Those of you who have been in non-English speaking foreign lands know the feeling 
all too well. One of my commentators was a Welshman. He said in 10 years in the United States, he's heard Welsh spoken only one time. And it got his attention immediately. That's my language. I remember being in the Tokyo airport, hearing the babble of Japanese all around me, seeing way far away down one of the hallways a man about a foot taller and 150 pounds heavier than everybody else wearing a large black Stetson. I made a beeline for that fellow. He could speak my language. So this sign grabbed public attention. Wait, I'm here in Jerusalem. I might hear Greek, I might hear Latin, I might hear some form of Aramaic or Hebrew on the street, but suddenly I'm hearing my own language from Cyrene, from Egypt, from Parthia, from Media. What is going on? What, what is this? The crowd comes together and starts being really impressed. Wait, these are all Galileans. Like These people don't belong in Jerusalem. They're from a different part of Israel, and yet they know my language. Right, I'm not, I didn't suddenly run across a cultural festival that the Parthians were having. I didn't just stumble into uh, an Elamite convention. These aren't Elamites. These aren't Parthians. These are Galileans. Yet they speak my language and they're speaking about God. So Luke lists all the nations for which he can find evidence that there were people from that nation at that event. And there's a lot of them. People essentially from everywhere surrounding Israel. Whether you go out to the far east and the Parthians, or whether you go out to the far west, the Africans, the parts of Libya, around Cyrene, way out there on the Mediterranean coast, south of Spain. These people were there. They heard their own language. The scattering of Babel is beginning to be healed by the gathering of Christ as he brings the nations together into his multi-ethnic, or at first, not multi-ethnic, multilingual church. And as the book progresses, we'll see the church become multi-ethnic as well. So the apostles begin to preach, but already it produces a divided reaction. Some say they're drunk. Nah. Just a bunch of dumb drunkards here at this religious festival already early in the morning. Just had a little too much new wine. And there are people then and people now who say that about the preaching of the gospel. Some of you perhaps many several years ago when it came out saw the trailer for Bill Maher's documentary, Religious, in which he went around and found all the religious people he could find doing the dumbest things he could find and filmed them all to laugh at them. And he, in the trailer, he cuts together a bunch of shots of people doing dumb stuff with this pop song about being stupid and crazy. And that is how the non-believing world many times looks at the preaching of the gospel. That already happened on the very first morning of the very first day of the church's existence. 
Remember our application last week, expect to be ridiculous. Expect to tell people, I serve the omnipotent, omniscient creator of heaven and earth who knows everything. Who picked a thief to be his treasurer? We are ridiculous. The church was founded in scandal with Iscariot on board. And chapter 2, it doesn't let up. You will be perceived as having a blood alcohol level well above the legal limit if you insist on talking about the mighty works of God. You will provoke a reaction of hatred, disgust, contempt, eye rolls, etc. And Luke takes pains to tell us that right away. But there's also interest. There's some who say, what does this mean? And presumably these are the ones who at the end are converted through Peter's preaching. So not everyone will reject the message, but many will. Again, Luke is telling us about the church so we can know the certainty of what we've been taught. This is how the Spirit came. This is who the Spirit is. He's wind. He's fire. He empowers the preaching of the gospel. He gives us tongues to speak of the mighty works of God, whether in our own language or in some other, in extraordinary cases. But the final point that I want to make just briefly is, we won't look at Peter's sermon, but Peter stands up and tells everyone what happened. God reserves the right to authoritatively interpret his actions. God is the one who says, I'll tell you what happened. This is what Joel prophesied. First point of Peter's sermon. And then second Peter point, second Peter pointer's sermon. Wow, second point of Peter's sermon, the savior that Joel prophesied is Jesus of Nazareth. So the descent of the Spirit was prophesied. Jesus was prophesied. That's Peter's sermon. He explains to the crowd that first fruits is fulfilled with the resurrection of the Son of God. Death is no more because Jesus lives. That's why we're here speaking languages we never learned about the mighty works of God. The Spirit came. First fruits was fulfilled. So don't live in a pre-Pentecost fashion. As though you didn't have the Spirit. As though you were still waiting for Him. No. He's here. He came to bring you to Jesus. You're a sheep in Jesus' barn. Live like Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have sent Your Son to harvest with the help of your Spirit. We thank you that he is no longer harvesting wheat, but that he's harvesting people. He's bringing us to the threshing floor. Lord, help us as we go through that threshing process, whether by hearing the rebuke of your word or by feeling the sting of public disapproval or the guilt of our own sin and failure. Lord, help us, we pray, to rely on the Spirit, 
to know the Spirit of Jesus as the one who came at Pentecost in wind and fire and who has the power to bring us safely to your heavenly kingdom, who has the power to bring us out of this present evil age where the cycle of birth and death continues and to deliver us safely into the age to come where resurrection life will be all around us. Father, we thank you that the feast of first fruits was fulfilled. We thank you that your son's winnowing fan is in his hand. And we pray for the gathering of the wheat. We pray for those fields that are white to harvest. Lord, if you would call us to that, call us. Help us to make disciples wherever we go and whatever our other callings are. Send out laborers into that harvest who will work alongside your son. We thank you that for the fulfillment of first fruits, for the ongoing harvesting of a great multitude which no man can number from every tribe and tongue and people and language and nation. Help us to hear and heed your words, to know you as Savior and Lord today. We pray in the name of your Son who lives and reigns with you and your Spirit, one God in three persons forever and ever. Amen.